Hey guys, I'm Chastity, and this is the Ancient Conspiracies Podcast. Unless we understand Genesis 6, in my opinion, it's almost impossible to understand the rest of Scripture. We go back to Genesis 6 and we read, The sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they desired them, and, and married whomever they chose. And giants were born, and Nephilim were on the earth, and also afterwards. And from that unholy union came the flood. These were the watchers who governed the physical world before the flood. They were supposed to be helping humankind, but when they rebel, they commit these violations against the laws of creation. Very powerful angels came down and they mingled with humans. So there was a saturation, an intermarriage between angels and humans, and then through intermarriage, this was spreading uh, over hundreds of years until finally, by the time we reach Noah, he's the last specimen left that has a genetic makeup, his DNA, as God had made it. If you asked a Jew, hey, why is the world the mess that it is? Why is human depravity so bad? They would say the real impact is the sin of the watchers. Because when the watchers sin like this, they also teach humanity lots of things that corrupt humanity. Every major ancient civilization has a similar narrative of the gods, uh, these entities, these beings descending from heaven and commingling with the human race, taking from among the children of men why, and producing, as a result, offspring that were not fully human and were not fully of the gods. These were the demigods, and in many cases giants, but not just giants, all kinds of beasts and, and, and creatures that came into existence that were not sanctioned by God. They were not sanctioned to exist, so they were wholly evil. Well, welcome back to the podcast. For those of you that are new, we're currently making our way through the book of Enoch. And we ended last week by introducing the four archangels that surround the throne of God. They not only witnessed the corruption that was taking place on earth at the hand of the fallen angels, but they immediately brought it before God to ask what needed to be done about it. And this week, God is going to dispatch these angels to correct the corruption that has taken place. And I feel like I need to make you aware that there is evidence of this corruption having taken place over the course of hundreds of years. This was not a short period of history. In fact, the Bible doesn't necessarily distinguish when the fallen angels descended. We know that it happened during the days of Noah when mankind began to multiply on the earth. But that's really all the detail that we're given. Whereas in the book of Enoch, we're told that it happened in the days of Jared, who was Noah's great-great-grandfather. And there's been some analysis of the genealogies given in Genesis chapter 5, which alludes to the possibility of the flood happening at least 200 years after the death of Jared. And technically, we aren't told at what point during the days of Jared that they even descended. So this alone means that there was at least a 200-year span when these angels were corrupting humanity before God brought the flood. 
In fact, Pastor J.R. Church believes that Adam was still alive during this time frame and would have witnessed the corruption introduced by these fallen angels for at least the final 300 years of his life. Remember, people lived incredibly long lifespans prior to the flood. And this introduces a very heartbreaking irony that Adam would have been around to witness the fulfillment of the prophecy given by God in the Garden of Eden. The war that was placed between the seed of Adam and the seed of the serpent. How devastating would it have been for Adam to have seen his seed genetically corrupted by the serpent as an attempt to manipulate the outcome of this war? So I just wanted to set the scene here that this corruption didn't take place in a single generation. There were hundreds of years that passed, which devastated mankind and the earth. And this is why we see in Genesis that God shortens the lifespans of mankind after the flood. No longer would humanity live hundreds of years to continually perpetuate evil. So with that in mind, we're going to dive into chapter 10, and I'm not going to play it in its entirety like I usually do because it's a very large chapter. We're going to break it down into small portions and discuss it as we go to make it easier to digest. There's a lot happening in chapter 10. So without further ado, let's dive in. Chapter 10. Then said the Most High, the Holy and Great One spake, and sent Uriel to the son of Lamech and said to him, Go to Noah, and tell him in my name, Hide thyself, and reveal to him the end that is approaching, that the whole earth will be destroyed, and a deluge is about to come upon the whole earth, and will destroy all that is on it. And now instruct him that he may escape, and his seed may be preserved for all the generations of the world. It's always been interesting to me that God already had the right person in mind to save humanity. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, we're told that Noah had found favor in the eyes of God. We're also told that Noah walked faithfully with God and was a righteous man, perfect in his generations. Now, perfect is an interesting word that's been translated in numerous different ways. Some people translate this to mean righteous, that Noah was the only righteous person left on the planet. Whereas others interpret this as a reference to his genetics. In other words, he and his family were genetically pure. They had been untampered with by the fallen angels, which is why he may have been chosen to be saved. And there's a bit of discrepancy within this section of the story as it relates to the biblical version. In the Bible, we're told that God himself warns Noah of the flood. But in the book of Enoch, God sends Uriel to warn Noah and prepare him. Now, I don't know if there's any major significance to that, but I wanted to make you aware of that discrepancy just in case. And along with Uriel being sent to Noah, Raphael is sent to bind Azazel and heal the earth. Gabriel is sent to gather up the giants, and Michael is sent to bind Shemyaza. If you remember from last episode, all of the destruction that comes against humanity is attributed to these two leaders. Shemyaza led the destruction of genetics, and Azazel led the destruction of knowledge. And therefore, when God responds, these two leaders are the first to be dealt with alongside the corruptions that they instituted, starting with Azazel. And again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness, 
and make an opening in the desert which is in Dudael, and cast him therein, and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there for ever, and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth that they may heal the plague, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. So as you can see, Azazel becomes the epitome of all the sins that beset the human race. And God commands that he be bound and placed in darkness in the desert until the day of judgment, when he would be cast into the lake of fire. Now, what's interesting about this is that the very day of judgment goes on to become represented by Azazel over a thousand years later by Moses. If you remember, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments from God, the Israelites, recently freed from Egyptian slavery, were at the base of the mountain erecting an idol. So poor Moses has to go back up the mountain to atone for this grave sin. Literally, he comes down with the Ten Commandments and has to go right back up because they'd already broken the second commandment given by God. And if you've never done a study on Exodus, Jen Wilkins has a great one. And at one point in the study, she asked that you map out how many times Moses went up and down the mountain. <laughs> it was something like 10 times. I felt so bad for him. But according to Jewish tradition, Moses is believed to have returned from the mountain to announce that forgiveness had been achieved on the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is one of the feasts that God commanded the Israelites to observe going forward. They refer to it as Yom Kippur. Yom means day in Hebrew, and Kippur means atonement. And therefore, this day has long been observed in reference to the atonement of their sins. This feast is widely observed as the very date when Moses returned from Mount Sinai to announce that their sins had been forgiven. And it's on this day in Leviticus chapter 16 when God commands Aaron, Moses' brother, to bring two goats before the Lord. One would be a burnt offering for God, and the other would be a sin offering, a scapegoat, in which all of the sins of the nation would be attributed, and then it would be driven into the desert and run off a cliff. Almost exactly what happened to Azazel prior to the flood. In fact, the word scapegoat in Hebrew literally translates Azazel, which is why some biblical translations say scapegoat and other translations actually show the word Azazel. This ritual, which was commanded by God for the Israelites to observe, was not only designated as a reminder of this ancient history, but it also came to represent the sins of the nation being physically taken away, removed from the people, which should sound like a very familiar concept for believers, because this later came to be fulfilled through Christ. We're told in Psalms chapter 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
And here's something beautiful. These goats were said to have been practically identical, and therefore the way in which they would tell them apart was to tie a red sash around the horns of the scapegoat. Now, many years later, once the temple had been built, they stopped tying this red sash around the horns of the goat and instead started tying it around the temple doors. And according to the Talmud, a Jewish religious text, every year the red sash would turn white on the Day of Atonement, symbolizing that their sins had indeed been removed from them and washed white, a fresh start. This is why every year on Yom Kippur, all Jews wear white. It's also why there's symbolism in the book of Revelation of our robes being washed white with the blood of the Lamb. But there's an interesting occurrence that happens in the year 30 CE, which is also documented in the Talmud. Undoubtedly, starting in the year 30 CE, the red sash that was placed on the temple doors stopped turning white, and it never again turned white all the way until the temple was destroyed. And this was hugely significant and likely why it was documented, because to their utter confusion, it meant that the sins of Israel were no longer being pardoned by the goat offering. And this is yet another testament to their blindness. They never connected that earlier that same year, on the 14th of the month of Nisan, the day of Passover, Jesus was crucified on the cross and became the ultimate sacrifice that atoned for the sins of the world. The goat offering was never again necessary because Christ became the ultimate fulfillment of this feast, which is why we as Christians, Christians should also observe this feast because this is the very date in history when the sins of Israel were taken away by the goat sacrifice and our sins were taken away by the Lamb of God. And bringing it full circle, prophetically speaking, the Day of Atonement will one day be the very Day of Judgment that awaits Azazel. If you're a believer, your sins have been forgiven, and this is a day where we will rejoice and our robes will be made white. But for those who have rejected Christ and fallen into sin because of the unrighteous knowledge that was instituted by Azazel so long ago, it will be the dreaded day of judgment that has long been prophesied for Satan and his angels to be cast into the lake of fire. So you can clearly see how the history of Azazel was forever cemented into scripture by the Israelites on the Day of Atonement, which is yet another example corroborating the authenticity of the Book of Enoch. And if you know anything about the Hebrew calendar, when God designates a date, there are numerous events that tend to happen on this date throughout history that point to its purpose. And this is why these feasts are so important and applicable for the followers of God to understand. And I want to take a moment and talk about the very place that Azazel was bound, what is referred to as Dudael. It's also referred to as Dudain or Dindain and various other names based on different translations. In later chapters of Enoch, it's referred to as being east of the Garden of Eden, a desert wilderness that is the home of a creature called Behemoth. 
Now, behemoth is also mentioned alongside Leviathan in the book of Job in the Bible. And I'm not going to go into great detail here because we're going to come back to it when we reach those chapters. I primarily wanted to point out that the location where Azazel was imprisoned is referenced as being a wilderness east of Eden. Coincidentally, the very location where Cain was also exiled. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, we're told that after Cain killed Abel, quote, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden, unquote. Now, Nod is a Hebrew word that means to wander in a very similar way that the suffix azel, as in azazel, also means to go away. And therefore, Nod was believed to be a place that was outside the presence of God, an anti-Eden, if you will. And a well-known Christian theologian from the first century, origin of Alexandria, defined the land of Nod as a place of trembling, which symbolized the condition of all who forsake God. As we're going to see in the next couple of chapters, the fallen angels will tremble when they learn their fate, in the same way that the kings of earth will also tremble in fear when God's wrath is poured out in the book of Revelation. And there have been even other interpretations of Nod as being a place of darkness, possibly even underground, away from the very face of God. And here's something incredibly fascinating. There's a possible translation of the word Nod in Greek, which translates to resting or sleeping. It's where we get the English phrase to nod off in reference to falling asleep. And this caught my attention because of something that I neglected to mention in one of my previous episodes. In episode 29, I introduced the magic bands with which the fallen angels bound themselves with a curse. And I mentioned at the time that these magic bands were used in ancient occult societies as a way of controlling spiritual entities, controlling demons, and using them for sinister purposes. This was undoubtedly a technology that was well known in the pre-flood world. Now, what I neglected to mention was that Pastor Tom Horn also found a connection to these bands being used as a way to subdue entities, something to do with resting or sleeping, what we might consider today suspended animation, to put these entities into a hibernation state where they would be dormant but not dead. And in a similar way, we're told in the book of Enoch that Azazel was to be bound hand and foot until the day of judgment. Is it possible that the same technology was used? Rather than be imprisoned behind bars, he was placed in darkness and covered with jagged rocks, and his binding served as a means of subduing him in a supernatural way. And as we're going to see shortly, the rest of the fallen angels were bound as well. And this history is actually documented in the Bible in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where we're told, quote, For God did not even spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, unquote. Now, the word hell in this passage is the Greek word Tartarus, the same word used in Greek mythology, which was known as the prison of the Titans. Tartarus was often described in Greek mythology as being a deep abyss, the deepest regions of the world, the underworld, exactly as hell or Sheol is described in scripture. 
And there's one more thing that I want to share before we move on, and that is that Azazel is often connected in ancient Near East writings as being a demonic entity. According to Hayim Tawil, a professor of Hebrew language and literature at Yeshiva University in New York, the desert has long shared an association to the demonic realm. As we discussed in episode 7, there went on to be a history of pagan gods who continued to rule from the desert throughout the Old Testament. In Canaanite mythology, for example, the pagan god El builds a desert sanctuary, making him essentially a desert god. And we connected El to being a play on the name Azazel, which when translated Az-Azel, like we did earlier, it means scapegoat or wandering goat. But when translated Azazel, it means goat god. And there's a reference to this in Leviticus. As we know from scripture, shortly after freedom, the Israelites stopped bringing their sacrifices before God, and they once again began offering sacrifices to idols. We're told in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7, quote, They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat demons to whom they prostitute themselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for them and for generations to come, unquote. And Deuteronomy chapter 32 references this same history. In fact, verse 17 says, quote, They sacrificed to demons and not to God, unquote. Again, a connection to this pagan history of Azazel, who was elevated as a god in the pre-flood world, but was bound in the desert by God awaiting Judgment Day, and who went on to be worshipped in the desert long after the flood by the pagans, who continued to offer sacrifices to him. He was long associated with being the goat god, or the goat demon, as the Mesopotamians believed. And there's a modern-day image which is very well-known and continues to be associated with Azazel even today, and that is the image of Baphomet, who is still widely recognized in occult symbolism and is depicted as having the wings of an angel but the head and the feet of a goat, a fallen angel goat god who is still being worshipped in the occult today. And the final thing that I want to point out about this passage within chapter 10 is that after Azazel is bound, Raphael is instructed to heal the earth so that not everyone would die because of the secrets that Azazel taught. If you remember from last episode, in Judaism, the name Raphael means healing, which is likely why he was chosen for this task. And I want to point out here that God instructs this healing to take place to prevent mankind's destruction on account of the knowledge that they were given. Essentially, had God not intervened, humanity would have been destroyed because of this knowledge, which is the same thing that's going to happen again in the end days. In Matthew chapter 24, Christ is asked by the disciples, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? To which Christ gives a laundry list of things to watch for. Deceivers, false prophets, wars, famines, earthquakes, persecution, an increase in wickedness, distress of nations unlike anything the world has ever seen. And in the midst of this, Christ says, quote, if those days had not been shortened, there would be no flesh left alive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened, unquote. 
Here we see the end days filled with the same level of wickedness, exactly what God describes as the cause for the flood of Noah. And once again, we're told that God will have to intervene to keep humanity from being completely destroyed. History will repeat itself. In fact, Christ went on to say, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be with the coming of the Son of Man. So he confirms that there's a connection between these two events. And as we mentioned last season, there's even a possibility that the watchers will once again return in some form or fashion to initiate this corruption all over again. There's a very cryptic passage in the book of Daniel when he's interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the final earthly empire, the final age of humanity, where he says, quote, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, unquote. And there's absolutely no other context that we are given. There are no other beings or entities mentioned in his translation. So there's a lot of speculation about who they are. Clearly, they aren't the seed of men if they're mingling with the seed of men. And therefore, this passage has widely been interpreted as a reference to the watchers who in the pre-flood world not only mingled with the seed of men, but they also married them and had offspring. And therefore, Daniel is distinguishing that they will live among us, but they won't cleave. They won't marry like they had done before. This time, they'll instead bring back the knowledge which brings about the same wickedness that caused the first destruction of earth. And in the same way that God had to intervene in the book of Enoch to keep humanity from being destroyed, God will also have to intervene again. So with that, let's get back to Enoch as God continues to clean up the mess created by these watchers. And to Gabriel said the Lord, Proceed against the bastards and the reprobates and against the children of fornication, and destroy the children of fornication and the children of the watchers from amongst men, and cause them to go forth and send them one against the other, that they may destroy each other in battle. For length of days they shall not have. And no request that they, their fathers, make of thee shall be granted unto their fathers on their behalf. For they hope to live an eternal life and that each one of them will live 500 years. So next up on the list, God tells Gabriel to round up all of the giants and essentially force them into war with each other for the purpose of killing them off. As we read last episode, they were already incredibly wicked warmongers, but unlike their fallen angel fathers, who were eternal beings, the giants were given designated lifespans. As we see in the passage, the fallen angels expected the giants to live forever, but God made it clear that none of them would live past 500 years, which is just wild to me and confirms exactly what we said at the beginning of today's episode, that this attack on humanity took place over the course of centuries. If none of the giants lived past 500 years, does that mean that some of them lived right up to 500 years? That would mean that the assault on humanity went from being the two to 300 years that we supposed at the beginning of the episode to a much longer period of history. And I think this is the perfect place to introduce an interesting story found in the book of the giants that offers some insight into the mindset of the giants regarding the punishment that's given by God. 
If you remember from last episode, the Book of the Giants was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls alongside the Book of Enoch, and it's been speculated that at one point in time it was probably included in the Book of Enoch. In his book, The Ancient Book of Enoch, Dr. Ken Johnson expounds on the Book of the Giants and a fragment of it that was found within the Dead Sea Scrolls, which describes a dream that one of the giants had regarding their impending doom. In the fragment, we're told that Mawe, one of the giant sons of the fallen angel Barakel, had a dream in which he sees a tablet inscribed with many names immersed in water. And when it is brought out of the water, it only has three names left on it, which is widely recognized as a reference to the three sons of Noah. When he shares his dream with the other giants, a couple of the sons of Shimyaza interpret the dream to be a reference to the doom coming for the fallen angels for having corrupted the earth. Now, alongside this dream, members of the Eliud clan began having dreams of their own, and they brought their dreams to the giants. They dreamt that the entire world was a garden that was destroyed by a flood, except for three roots from one tree. And even other members of the clan dreamt that there were 200 trees in the garden which were destroyed by their roots. Clearly a reference to the 200 fallen angels who descended onto Mount Hermon. And this is incredibly interesting because there's a very cryptic passage out of Ezekiel chapter 31 that not only talks about the earth as a garden, but it also compares trees to what appears to be angels. According to Ezekiel chapter 31, there's one tree in particular who is referenced as the Assyrian, and he was exalted above all the other trees in the garden, and there was no other tree in the garden of God that could compare to his beauty. He was the envy of all the trees in the Garden of Eden, and God says that because of his pride, he was cut down and brought to the realm of the dead. And then all the remaining trees in Eden were also cut down and sent to the realm of the dead. And this passage in Ezekiel sounds eerily similar to what we see happen in the book of Enoch. Clearly, Ezekiel is referencing Lucifer. And there are actually quite a few connections between Lucifer and Azazel. So I found this analogy of trees in comparisons to angels consistent in both the book of the giants and in scripture. And because of these dreams, the Council of the Giants decides to seek out Enoch for interpretation. And the Book of the Giants says that Mawe mounted up in the air like an eagle and flew over the place of desolation and through the great desert in search of Enoch. And unfortunately for him, Enoch issues a chilling interpretation. Quote, in the name of the great and holy God, to Shemyaza and all of his companions, let it be known to you that because of the things you and your wives and your sons and your sons' wives have done by your promiscuity on earth, a sentence has been placed upon you. All of creation is crying out to God and complaining about you and the deeds of your children and the harm that you have done to the earth until Raphael arrives. Behold, a great flood is coming, and it will destroy all living things on earth, all life in the land and sea. It will come upon you because of your evil. Therefore, loosen the bonds that bind you to this evil and pray." Unquote. Here we see the technology again that we mentioned earlier, the bands that were used to bind themselves to the consequences of the evil that they were spreading. 
If you remember in the book of Enoch, the fallen angels agreed to bind themselves to the curse for what they were about to do. But here in the book of Giants, we see that the giants also have been bound to the same outcome. And I found it interesting that Enoch is warning them to release their bands that bound them to this fate and essentially repent, which alludes to the possibility that they too, just like their fallen angel fathers, knew what they were doing and were in agreement with it. Not as if it was some type of a generational curse that was passed on to them. They were aware of it and had already aligned themselves with the plan. And there's something else that Dr. Michael Heiser illuminates within this story that I found super fascinating. In an interview with Skywatch TV, he references a fragment within the Book of the Giants where the Giants seem to be under the impression that this punishment was solely for their fallen angel fathers and that they were going to get off essentially scot-free. The trees, even as we see in Ezekiel, are a reference to angels, not to giants. And therefore, there's another passage within the Book of the Giants Giants where the giants essentially relax a bit, thinking that they've dodged a bullet of the judgment that's coming. Little do they know that they're not only destined to die, but that their death serves even another purpose. Their fallen angel fathers were cursed with witnessing it. And the Lord said unto Michael, Go, bind Semjaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And when their sons have slain one another, and they have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them fast for seventy generations in the valleys of the earth till the day of their judgment and of their consummation, till the judgment that is for ever and ever is consummated. And in those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire, and to the torment and the prison in which they shall be confined for ever. And whosoever shall be condemned and destroyed will from thenceforth be bound together with them to the end of all generations, and destroy all the spirits of the reprobate and the children of the watchers, because they have wronged mankind. Destroy all wrong from the face of the earth, and let every evil work come to an end. So in the same way that we see Azazel bound and Raphael was sent to heal the earth of his corruption, here we see Shemyaza and all of his associates bound, but first they are cursed with having to watch the destruction of their offspring. And as soon as they witnessed the death of their children, they too were bound, but there's an interesting clause that you might have missed. Different from the judgment that Azazel received, these angels were said to be bound for 70 generations until the day of their judgment. So in comparison to Azazel, Azazel was to be bound forever until the day of the great judgment, whereas Shemyaza and his associates were to be bound for 70 generations until the day of their judgment. And what's interesting about this is that we're given the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And there are 77 generations listed from Adam all the way to Jesus. Now, we've mentioned in previous episodes that Enoch was seven generations from Adam. So this means that 70 more generations past Enoch brings us all the way to Christ. 
So according to the book of Enoch, the fallen angels who initiated the corruption against genetics were bound for 70 generations until the date that God had designated for their judgment, which arrives at the very moment when Christ was crucified on the cross. In fact, the book of Enoch says, quote, in those days, they will be led off to the fiery abyss, to the torment and the prison in which they will be confined forever, unquote. And this is confirmed in 1 Peter chapter 3, where we're told that after his resurrection, Christ went and spoke with these spirits who were in prison, quote, who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, unquote. So here we see Christ visit them in prison. And first Peter goes on to say that then Christ ascended to the right hand of God and all angels, authorities, and powers currently submit to him. Essentially, Christ's death and resurrection signified their judgment day. So now that all the corruption has been taken care of and the fallen angels have been bound, Enoch is going to skip ahead in time to describe a time period in the future when righteousness is one day restored permanently. So I'm going to play the final verses of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11, which is only a paragraph because they both connect to this same period. Let's take a listen. And let the plant of righteousness and truth appear, and it shall prove a blessing. The works of righteousness and truth shall be planted in truth and joy forevermore. And then shall all the righteous escape, and shall live till they beget thousands of children. And all the days of their youth and their old age shall they complete in peace. And then shall the whole earth be tilled in righteousness, and shall all be planted with trees and be full of blessing. And all desirable trees shall be planted on it, and they shall plant vines on it. And the vine which they plant thereon shall yield wine in abundance. And as for all the seed which is sown thereon, each measure of it shall bear a thousand, and each measure of olives shall yield ten presses of oil. And cleanse thou the earth from all oppression, and from all unrighteousness, and from all sin, and from all godlessness, and all the uncleanness that is wrought upon the earth, destroy from off the earth. And all the children of men shall become righteous, and all nations shall offer adoration, and shall praise me, and all shall worship me. And the earth shall be cleansed from all defilement, and from all sin, and from all punishment, and from all torment. And I will never again send them upon it, from generation to generation, and forever. Chapter 11 And in those days I will open the store chambers of blessing which are in the heaven, so as to send them down upon the earth over the work and labor of the children of men. And truth and peace shall be associated together throughout all the days of the world and throughout all the generations of men. 
According to George W.E. Nicholsburg, who's widely referenced in Dr. Michael Heiser's Companion to the Book of Enoch, this section of Enoch is a reference to the new earth that's created after the flood, the earth that Noah and his sons would inhabit. And this is primarily based on the passages that talk about the righteous escaping and the plant of righteousness that's produced and the vines that produce an abundance of wine. As we know from scripture, as soon as the floodwaters receded, Noah built a vineyard. And R.H. Charles, one of the most well-known translators of the book of Enoch, seems to agree with this assessment. He translates the plant of righteousness as a metaphor for Noah and his family. As we're told in scripture, the post-flood earth once again became a utopia like Eden. The earth was cleansed from defilement and from sin, and there were thousands of children that came from Noah and his sons. We also see at the close of chapter 10 the same promise that God gave Noah in the Bible, that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now, Dr. Ken Johnson offers a slightly different perspective of these passages. Rather than pertaining to the post-flood world, Dr. Johnson believes that this is prophetically pointing to the millennial reign. Although many of these things may have happened during the time frame immediately following the flood, it didn't take long for unrighteousness to quickly return. In fact, the Bible tells us that they literally get off the boat, God gives them the rainbow in the sky and tells them to go forth, be fruitful and multiply. And only two sentences later, Noah builds a vineyard and gets drunk. And he's laying naked in his tent when his son Ham wanders in and mocks his nakedness. And therefore Noah curses Ham to be the servant of his brothers. And as we all know, if you listened to season one of the podcast, Ham goes on to father all of the rebellious generations after the flood, including Cush, who fathered Nimrod, who becomes the first king on earth after the flood, the king of Babylon. Ham also fathered a son named Egypt, which is where we get the pagan civilization of Egypt. In fact, it was one of the first civilizations to take off after Babylon. Ham also fathered Canaan, where we get the famous Canaanites, who were well known for their pagan practices. In fact, all of the descendants of Ham go on to reinstate the knowledge from the pre-flood world and promote the worship of the fallen angels through the idols that were mentioned all throughout the Bible. So the righteousness and the peace mentioned in Enoch chapter 10 doesn't line up with the post-flood world of Noah. After all, it says in verse 21 that all of the children of men would become righteous and all of the nations would worship God. But there were no nations immediately following the flood. There were only eight people. And by the time there were nations, they weren't all righteous or at peace. So it just doesn't work, according to Dr. Ken Johnson. Instead, he believes that this is a reference to the millennial reign, the thousand-year period when Christ is said to return to live on earth, when the earth is completely renewed. We're told in Revelation chapter 21 that John actually witnesses the new heaven and the new earth appear when God himself once again dwells among the people. And it's very much in accordance with what we see described in Enoch. Righteousness is once again restored, peace and blessing. And probably very similar to what was found in the Garden of Eden, the plants will once again yield in abundance. 
When God returns, the earth will be cleansed from all oppression, unrighteousness, and ungodliness. And there will be many nations who will worship God. And I feel like this is a good time to take a moment and expound on the concept of a millennial reign. I happened to reference it recently in the Facebook group and someone wanted to know what I meant by it. So for those of you who may not be familiar with the concept, it's referenced in the book of Revelation chapter 20 when Christ returns to rule the nations for a period of 1000 years. We also touched on it briefly in episode 19, where I introduced the Essenes, an ancient religious Jewish sect who were believed to have been the ones that compiled the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the Book of Enoch that we're currently studying. And the Essenes mapped out all of human history over the course of 7,000 years. And if you think about it, this lines up scripturally because if a thousand years is as a day unto the Lord and a complete week is seven days, then 7,000 years would be a complete history. And the Essenes broke this 7,000 years into four distinct ages. The first three ages span 2,000 years each. And the final age is considered a Sabbath, an age of rest. The first 2,000-year period, the Essenes called the Age of Creation. The second 2,000-year period was called the Age of Torah, and this was the period of history when Moses led the Exodus and the law was reestablished. It's also when the Essenes existed a couple hundred years before Christ, and the final 50-year span of this age included Christ's arrival and the destruction of the temple. Now, the third 2,000-year period was actually listed by the Essenes as the Age of Grace. That's what they called it, 200 years before Christ ever arrived. And it's during this age of history that the gospel has been spread. We are still living in the Age of Grace. And in case you're curious to know, the Age of Grace is expected to end, according to the Essene calendar, in the year 2075. In fact, in the year 2025, which is barely over a year away, we will enter the final 50-year span of our period of history. And then the final thousand years, the Essenes called the Age of the Kingdom, what we widely know as Christ's millennial reign, when Christ will return to live among us for a thousand years. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, which was referenced by John in Revelation. And this concept is not only corroborated in the book of Enoch and in the book of Revelation and in the Essene writings, but incredibly, it's also corroborated by the feasts that God commanded the Israelites to observe. And as I've mentioned for a few weeks now, we are currently in the middle of the fall feast, which is really mind-blowing because they completely align with everything that we're talking about in the book of Enoch. As we discussed earlier, the Day of Atonement shares many meanings, both historically and prophetically, all of which connect in some form or fashion to the sins that were either previously forgiven for the righteous or the judgment that's coming for the unrighteous. And the rest of the fall feasts are equally as powerful. There's a reason that God commanded his followers to observe these feasts in preparation for their fulfillment. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of every single one of these feasts. And this is why it's vitally important to Christians. It's also why I continually preach that in order to understand prophecy, you must first understand history and the feasts. Once you understand the magnitude 
magnitude of the feast. Prophecy makes so much more sense. And the final feast of the year is known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast that is currently happening as we speak. This is the very week of Sukkot. And prophetically speaking, Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, points to the very time frame that we're discussing in Enoch chapters 10 and 11. First of all, it's called Sukkot because Sukkot means booth or tent or tabernacle, which is why it's also referenced as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Jews observed Sukkot in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt when they were freed from slavery and wandered through the desert for 40 years living in temporary shelters or tents. They also constructed a temporary tabernacle of God in the wilderness so that he could live among them. It's also widely believed to be the time frame of the actual birthday of Christ when the word was made flesh and once again tabernacled among man. And not surprisingly, it will prophetically be the same time frame when Christ returns the final time to live with us at the end of history. Exactly what we're seeing in Enoch when righteousness will be restored and God pours out a blessing upon the earth and the nations worship God and Christ rules the nations as we're told in Revelation. And there's once again a new heaven and a new earth, a new beginning. And the Jews were commanded by God to practice for this reunion for thousands of years. It not only became the date in history when God dwelt among man in a tent, but also when God walked among man in the flesh. And it will one day be the very prophesied date when Christ will dwell among us once again. And that's where we're going to end today. Now, next episode, we're finally going to get to meet Enoch. God sends Enoch with a message for the fallen angels that their judgment is final. And they respond with complete shock. In fact, they beg Enoch to intercede to God on their behalf. And on his way to do so, Enoch is given a vision with God's reply. And on a separate note, tomorrow evening I'll be hosting a Zoom call for anyone who might be interested in joining and discussing the Book of Enoch or the podcast or have questions. It's really just a time for us to see each other face-to-face and discuss anything and everything about the podcast. I've created an event in the Facebook group that contains the details for this Zoom call, and I've also shared a post on the website with the details as well. It will take place at 8 p.m. Central Standard Time tomorrow evening, and I hope you'll be there. And with that, if you've enjoyed today's content, you can support the podcast by becoming a listener supporter or by leaving me a review on whichever platform you're using. Reviews bring a ton of credibility for those who aren't familiar with my show. And if you're interested in accessing the script notes from today's episode, head over to my website and become a member. Membership is $10 a month and you get access to all the script notes for every episode plus access to the latest episode a couple of days before it airs on all platforms. Your donation helps sustain future episodes and keeps me ad-free. You'll find the details for all of this in the description of today's episode. And as always, make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and share this podcast with a friend. We'll see you next time.